delivering at five months of pregnancy was simply impossible. And I could not see how the twins would survive such extreme prematurity. Welcome to the Mighty Littles Podcast. Well, welcome to the Mighty Littles Podcast. I'm super excited to have you today. Why don't we start off by having you uh, introduce yourself to the Mighty Littles audience? Sure. So, hello, everybody. I'm Lelis Vernon. I am originally from Argentina, and uh, I am the proud mom of three boys. I had Brian, my first uh, son, in uh, Buenos Aires 22 years ago. And then I had identical twin boys. Uh, they were born extremely premature at 25 weeks, one pound, 11 ounces. Um, and uh, they were born here in Miami, Florida, where we currently live. And uh, just uh, like all other NICU families touched by micro prematurity, my life completely changed after the birth of the twins. So for the past 13 years, I've been dedicating all my time and my efforts to advance quality improvement in neonatology and patient and family advocacy in the NICU. Why don't we start with you kind of describing your NICU experience and kind of what your boys went through during their NICU stay. And, and we'll kind of start there because I definitely want people to get a, a snapshot and a capture of what your experience was like. And, and then um, later on, we'll talk about how that then morphed into all of your advocacy. But why don't we start with your boys' NICU stay and your experience with the NICU? Sure. So before I start telling you about my NICU experience, I, uh, I need to tell everybody that I had a good perspective of how a full-term birth looked like, because that was my first son. When I got pregnant with the twins, uh, I didn't know I was carrying twins until 20 weeks. They had not seen the twins in an ultrasound. And so for the longest time, for 20 weeks, I thought I had a very, very, very big baby inside. And I didn't know quite what was going on with my body, but it was definitely different from my first pregnancy. So um, at 20 weeks, they saw uh, the twins and, and they said that everything was fine. And then at week 24, I broke water and um, I was rushed to the hospital. Doing an ultrasound there, they discovered that the twins had twin to twin transfusion syndrome. And so that triggered a number of um, other procedures um, to preserve them. Um, and we were able to keep them for four more days. So the twins were born at 25 weeks and one day. <laughs> and I, I never expected to end up in the NICU. I didn't know what the NICU was, uh, just like everybody else, I guess. It was a complete shock, uh, a huge surprise. Um, and because I was uh, in magnesium for, for four days uh, prior, uh, I was quite out of it. So I 
kind of delegated all uh, decision-making processes to my husband. My husband is a numbers guy, just like most dads. So yeah, uh, I had a couple of conversations with neonatologists that told me about all these number of issues uh, the micropremies can have. And to be honest, I, I had no hope. Um, the picture wasn't uh, very good for, for, for the birth of the twins. And I didn't know what to expect. To me, delivering at five months of pregnancy was simply impossible. And I could not see how the twins would survive such extreme prematurity. So, but they did. They did, and then these two little fighters did. Um, they were admitted to the NICU, and they were put on an oscillator, and I couldn't see them for the first 48 hours. So when I first saw them, um, so little and so fragile, uh, my first thought was, it is impossible that this little bitty thing will ever make it. Um, their NICU course was pretty much uh, the one, two, threes, and ABCs of every micropremie. You know, the apneas and bradys, uh, sepsis, uh, transfusions, IVH, um, BPD, uh, the ROP ghost, looming around, a lot of checkups with the eyes. But we did have a big issue with necrotizing enterocolitis. Um, so one of the twins required surgical intervention and the other one didn't. However, the one that didn't uh, has now more issues than the one that did have the ostomy and reattachment. And um, with the twin that did require surgery, it got to a very, very uh, dangerous stage uh, to the point that I was told that they... Uh, there was nothing else they could do, which was the worst part of our NICU stay. Uh, because, again, I did not quite understand uh, what was happening. Uh, you know, I, I think that I carried my experience having a full term uh, that put me in a special spot, uh, a special perspective with all this NICU experience. And at the same time, I think that Hollywood maybe sells an image of uh, being in the ICU and and you guys, physicians and providers being magicians, right? Um, and uh, and that was not quite the reality that we were in. I was going to say, I think that's a really interesting comment because, you know, your boys are older now. And so you yeah. had 25-weekers a, a while ago, when probably the conversations that the doctors were having with you about 25 weekers are what we have with families now about 23 and 24 weekers. So, you know, that that it, those are really hard conversations before your baby's born, because there's no there's just no certainty. And I know that when I watch shows that have NICU experiences, so you can talk about Gray's Anatomy, you can talk about This Is Us just recently had NICU experience. They do portray it in a certain way, but oftentimes what they're portraying kind of really is not what happens at all. It's not one person that delivers your baby 
and intubates your baby and takes care of your baby and does <laughs> surgery on your baby's intestines. Those are three or four different people and they put them all in one person. And the timelines that are in the TV show are just super fast. So your baby is born, your baby gets sick, your baby gets surgery right now. And then by the end of the episode, your baby is fine. And the reality of the NICU is that there is a lot of hurry up and wait in those smallest and most fragile babies because we have a certain arsenal of things that we can do. And once we kind of do all of these things that are available to us, then we just have to wait and we have to see how your baby responds to those things. So the circumstance that you're that, that you've mentioned where your son needed surgery for NEC and the doctors had done everything that they could do and you're just waiting. I think that that is a more common experience than people realize. And it is really hard on physicians and NICU nurses because we know that we've done everything and either your baby is going to start to respond and get better or your baby isn't. But we don't know which way it's going to go. And you can't tell a family, well, your baby can't get better because we know they can. And we can't say, well, your baby will get better because we know they might not. And so we look kind of like we're just not telling you anything. But the reality is we're waiting for your baby to see, waiting to see what your baby is going to do. But yes, on the TV shows, they make it look like, well, we do all this stuff and then magic happens. But what the TV shows yeah. leave out is... One, the element of time, and two, the element of uncertainty. Like, we just sometimes don't know. Exactly, exactly. So I, I think that managing expectations of NICU parents, especially in the micro-premature uh, tier of the population in the NICU, is key, right? I think, you know, numbers help, but I think that my best conversations were those parents with parents with neonatologists, I would ask them, do you have kids? Would you do this with your kids? If this was your kid, what would you do? Um, and I, I could bring down, you know, um, the, uh, the physician um, uh, persona, I would say. Yeah. That, well, it, <laughs> and the human part to the right. conversation. Um, and, and of course, I, I, Keep them all close to my heart. Every single person that uh, care for for my twins, of course, uh, they're they're all tattooed in our memories and our hearts forever. And I'm, I'm always thankful. So, well, one of the reasons why I went back to the NICU was because I wanted to give back to all of them because they're wonderful uh, people. But definitely, there there is a health literacy uh, and education part uh, that needs to be done from admission with uh, families uh, in the NICU, especially the micro-premature families. Right. The families that are going to be there for such a long time. Yeah. Exactly. So probably my most dreaded question in the NICU from a parent is, if this was your baby, what would you do? Um, and <laughs> so, so, and the reason, the reason I say that is because I come from the the very jaded perspective of seeing everything that doesn't go well, right? Mm -hmm. And 
parents inherently are sitting in this place of wanting to have hope for their child. And so mm-hmm. that that in and of itself is kind of a dichotomy, right? Like I always see when it doesn't go well. And yeah, sometimes it goes okay, but you're sitting in this place of hope. And then the the other reason that I hate that question is because there is this assumption that I know what I would do, right? And I think what I remember from being pregnant with twins is I know that the statistics are not in my favor at, you know, like we're not going to do anything at 20, 21 weeks. And they're really not in my favor at 22 weeks. And would I do something or would I not do something? I'm not entirely sure. And at 23, they're a little better, but you're still really putting your kids through a ton with a high likelihood of very, very significant issues moving forward in life. And at 24 weeks, gosh, the odds are much more in your favor. And what I remember is feeling this feeling that I just wanted to protect my kids from any hurting. And mm-hmm. by definition, if you resuscitate on on in these micro preemies, you cannot protect your kids from hurting. This is an intensive care unit, and there is there are going to be procedures and, and hard things that happen in the NICU. And I remember just being relieved when I got to 24 weeks that the decision was made for me, right? Like now the, the numbers are good enough that there's no way I wouldn't try. Whereas at 22 and 23 weeks, what, what would I do? I, I honestly don't know. I know what I... I know what my 20-year-old super black and white person, right, my black and white thinking would say, but I don't know what my pregnant, I worked hard for these babies, I'm an older mom, we're so close, I already love these kids, I don't know what that person would do, right? And so that's a very long explanation around when families ask me, what would you do? There is this assumption that I, what my intellectual brain would tell me to do and what my heart would tell me to do are the same. And that's not always the case when you're a parent in the NICU. Mm -hmm. And I can't make those decisions. I can give you all the information to make them, but I don't know what I would do because I'm not actually in your shoes. And that's a great comment. Uh, when you're humble enough to say, I don't know, it's a wonderful thing, I would invite every provider to have that up their sleeve. Yeah. Because um, we simply don't know. And I, I want to say that I understand what you're saying now. And I understand it now because I've been working with NICU teams for 13 years. But when you land in the NICU, you don't know anything. It's like, you know, they say it's like playing a trip to Holland and landing in Jupiter. You just don't understand anything. You don't understand the landscape. Uh, the creatures around uh, your environment don't look like the people that you had in your mind. Your baby certainly doesn't look all uh, full grown and rosy cheeks. Uh, breathing on on his or herself so the language doesn't make sense we don't understand the language but when you're in it 
um, I think that bringing that level of honesty from the providers um, brings the human side of the NICU, which is so important for families to connect with the now of the NICU experience. It puts you in a, it puts you in in the present. Uh, when you're in the NICU, um, at, at this, I'll speak for myself. I uh, felt I was in a bubble. Nothing else mattered, of course, and um, the world stopped outside of the NICU bubble. So I think that those very human interactions are very valuable. And I think they're valuable. I think no. now that I've been working with NICU teams, I know they're valuable for staff too, for yeah. providers too. Um, they're valuable, they matter, and they're part of the quality of care that you give. I mean, you know, teams and NICUs around the country that are family-centered do have better performance scores and they have better outcomes and their patient satisfaction scores are higher. And so it's a, it's a valid thing to have. So um, let's remind everybody to keep it keep it human yes definitely and honest and humble yeah keep it keep it human and honest yeah I I totally agree okay sorry I didn't mean to get you off track I just wanted to to add those little points let's go back (laughs) to where were we we were one of your twins things were touch and go with NEC let's go let's go back there after a little sidetrack sure so um so that was close to uh our discharge date which, um, well, I have to say, I have a lot to say about discharge management in the NICU. <laughs> um, and I know that a lot of NICUs work very hard to figure out what's the best way to discharge families. So I was an unusual uh, mom because I kind of knew that I was a caregiver to my twins. So I was there 24-7, 24-7. Um, I didn't even know what kangaroo care was all about, but I wanted to carry my twins. I don't know if it was instinctively, but I, I just, I wanted to bathe them. I wanted to change their diapers. And I, I just asked to be the second pair of hands to care for the twins. So I was there a lot. Um, and then one day they say, well, one of the twins is ready to go home. And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Since when? Um, he was attached still to um, the pulse oximeter. He was on oxygen and he had heart monitor. He was on seven medications. And um, I, 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 don't, I did not feel that he was ready to go home. But because at this point, after four months of interaction with all providers, um, they told me that they thought that I was ready to be discharged. <laughs> so, so I was happy to hear that. Um, but nonetheless, um, I, I had a little panic attack on my ride home. It was a 45-minute ride from the hospital to, to our house. And um, uh, so we are carrying these little bitty baby and and all these machines and if there's one thing that I wish I would have taught I would have been taught in the NICU was 
to um, rely more on the baby and learning to look at the baby and not the screens and the machines and electronics and the numbers and the displays because I was totally dependent on every single screen that I had in front of me Mm -hmm. uh, to determine how well my baby was doing. Um, So we got home and then five days later, uh, the other twin was discharged. Um, And and then crazy life (laughs) settled in. There are two um, big phases in, in a NICU experience. One is from admission to discharge, and then it's life after NICU, from discharge on. And it's very, very different, but it is not any less challenging. And discharge management and discharge life after NICU has been one of my passions. Um, uh, There is a huge gap in care when it comes to NICU families after discharge. I, I spoke um, a number of years ago in a big conference that I felt that the NICU stay, uh, from a family perspective, the NICU stay looked, felt like you guys armed us with a wonderful parachute. Then this church day comes, you open up the door, you kick us out, and you say, hey, <laughs> while you're falling, you got to pull on this cord, and everything's going to be okay. But we're already falling. We're already out of it. There are many, many things we need to work out with uh, with hospitals, with NICUs, with hospital systems, and with the community to better inform and better equip families for life after NICU. And it, it is feasible, but it takes a village. Yes. It does take a village Yeah, to I get think- these kiddos uh, forward. Yeah, I like how you say there's two phases to the NICU stay, one where you're in the NICU and then the one after you go home, because I think there is this misnomer that once your baby goes home, you can kind of wash your hands of the NICU and, right, like now now we're done, we're done with the NICU. And, you know, for some people that, that might be the case. If you have a baby that's only there for a couple of days or you know, your baby doesn't have any needs moving forward. But for people that have longer NICU stays, um, and even for some people that have shorter NICU stays that just are really, really difficult, the the NICU doesn't end when you leave the front door. It simply is the next phase of what's happening. Mm -hmm. And I think we definitely need to do a better job of bridging the gap from in the hospital to out of the hospital. I always tell families, don't get addicted to my monitors. You need to learn how to pay attention to your baby. So I, I, I definitely agree to agree with that. And it's it's hard to go from, well, I have this really sick child to now I have this child at home. And are they really sick? Are they still really sick? Are they not really sick? How confident should I be? How worried should I be? That It is a huge transition. And you, you're in the NICU with all these people who see your baby 24-7, who have taken care of your baby for four months, and now there's this huge break in your care, and now everybody has to get to know your child all, all over again. It's it's a different doctor. It's a different occupational therapist. It's, you know, it's it's just all different. And so you feel like you're starting from scratch when you have all this history already. Right. So add to that 
the fact that I had two NICU graduates with seven medications each and three machines each. And so did I sleep? Mm, absolutely not. Hey, and you <laughs> had a one-year-old. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, you you have to become, you know, the nurse and the provider of your NICU child or children in my case. And then you have to be the uh, health administrator because there is a long list of ologists to be visited. And you have to figure out where they are, if they take your insurance, how far, what best times to accommodate these very fragile twins that I have at home. I have to be a mom, yes, to my older son. I have to be um, a wife. I have to be a neighbor, a daughter, a sister, a friend, a cousin. It's complicated. There is, you know, one of my many ideas to bridge this gap was to standardize follow-up clinics or follow-up care bundles, or especially for the micropremie population. You know, there, and I'm sorry if I'm making too much of a distinction between micropremies and the rest of the NICU population, but the reality is that, you know, the great majority of uh, graduate NICUs uh, coming from uh, an extreme or very low birth weight um, birth will require some uh, sort of long-term care and a number of interventions. And as I said, a, a, a visit to a lot of um, specialists and in our case, we were readmitted a week after discharge. One of the twins had uh, liver complications due to uh, neck and prolonged um, PPN uh, feedings. So we were readmitted, and that's when I guess my, my advocacy skills kicked in for the first time. Uh, we went to the ER, of course, and a pediatrician came over, and he wanted me to retell him my four months stay in the NICU and I said no 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 I'm sorry but I respect you but please call so and so one of the neonatologists that was the discharge neo for for this particular twin and they did <laughs> after me insisting a number of times I'm like I'm not going to tell you the whole history he knows better um, and let's figure this out uh, fast because time for these babies goes really, really fast. Um, so they did. And so it, it, was, uh, it, was, it was a wonderful experience. I think that that was my first experience, you know, not just bringing my, my voice as a, as a parent and my advocacy for the twins, but I also got an insight of how teamwork and care works when you call upon the... Uh, the uh, partnership with the providers. We are better together. We really are better together. Yeah. Uh, families and, and staff. We figure it out better. We function better. I, I, I'm not even sure how to ask this question, really. But how do you think you learned how to advocate for your boys, right? Like, you found your voice with that ER admission. But where did that come from? And for new parents that are trying to figure out how to advocate, 
what advice do you have for learning how to do that? Oh, that's a great question. You know, um, I don't know. Maybe it's my Latina side. <laughs> <laughs> I've, been told, I've been told it is my Latina side. Um, uh, and perhaps I have very strong mother figures uh, in my family. I don't know. Um, I just, again, you know, I had my experience, my first experience as a mother in Argentina. And coming here, the dynamic in healthcare was very different. And so I think I brought that perspective to my NICU experience, number one. And number two, um, to be completely honest, as a Latina, coming to the United States and having an, an ICU experience, I expected, my, my expectations were very, very high. I expected great care. Um, and as, as we said, there was a little bit of a Hollywood fantasy um, laced in all of it. But I thought there has to be a better way to all of this. And um, because I had two very, very fragile babies in the NICU, I was going to do my best to give to the experience um, anything I could. So I read everything I could find, I could put my hands on. I called on the phone families from other NICUs around the city and, and other parents because I wanted to hear about their experience. Um, I wanted to see graduate uh, NICU babies that were 25 weeks. I wanted to gather as much information and, and data <laughs> um, as possible to do to make the best of our experience and to do my part to advance, uh, you know, a, a, a healthy outcome, an optimal outcome for the twins. So I, I don't know if I really answer your questions. I, I just I just think I felt that there was a better way. Um, that's my best answer, I guess. Yeah, no, that's great. My, um, I think the things that I would say for parents who are kind of new to the advocating for your baby um, arena, whether you're in the NICU or you've gone home or, and you know, this applies to people who don't have NICU babies who have kids with whatever and you're trying to advocate yeah, yeah yeah you're trying to navigate through the school system or through the sports system or or, mm -hmm. or advocate for your kids in any number of ways is don't be afraid to ask questions if somebody says we're going to do this it's okay to say why right why are you going to do that um because if there's a good reason to do it then yeah that's that's worth a try but if if well, we're going to do this because this is what we always do. You ha you mm -hmm. have wiggle room to negotiate and to say, well, I know you always do that, but what I'm noticing is this. Don't be afraid to to put up your own. So number one is don't be afraid to ask questions, specifically why. And number two is to put up your own ideas. The worst thing that's going to happen is somebody's going to tell you no. But if they're really good at what they're doing, regardless of where this area of, of advocation is, if they're really good at what they do, they should be able to tell you why it's a no. Um, and that gives you an opportunity to either argue back 
okay, well, I hear you say no, but here's my next set of questions. Or to say, oh, okay, I now I understand where you're coming from and I see why what you're saying is what the next best step is. I now understand. So I'm more comfortable and I have more confidence in that plan. Really, what, what would I say to families, um, both in the NICU and outside of the NICU, it would be three things. The first one is if you're in the NICU, you're not alone. You're just not alone. Uh, there are thousands of other families that are going through the same. So my second piece of advice would be seek out peer-to-peer support um, because there are a number of uh, advocacy groups and uh, parent advisory councils. Uh, it's not in your hospital, um, around uh, your community. Uh, and national um, also groups. There are community groups that are volunteer teams of families, NICU families, um, offering support for NICU families. So seek them out. Look beyond the walls of the hospital. Um, I know how you feel. It feels like your world is ending, Um, but... Look beyond the walls of the hospital. There are resources for you. And the most important part, I think, is what you just mentioned, Anna, and it is that you as a parent uh, and as a family caregiver, important to your baby. You are an essential caregiver. Um, You have the right. Uh, to have a space at the bedside at all times, um, be involved with the care of your baby. Uh, don't be afraid of asking questions. Of course, you don't know anything about the NICU, and they know it, and they are ready to answer all your questions. So go ahead and ask, ask for um, material education. Um, I know that many times when we are given a bad um, test result, uh, or a new diagnosis, it's hard to gather all the information that they throw after a complicated name, as it was the case for necrotizing enterocolitis with my twins. Um, I remember they started explaining it, and my mind just completely um, disassociated from the dialogue. Um So at the end of the conversation, I said, you know, I will need some time to digest what you just said. It was a five-minute speech. Um, All I remember is necrotizing enterocolitis neck. Um, I need need to digest this. I'll I'll, I'll come back to you. And then we had many other conversations with other providers and and, and nurses and social workers. And um, my husband was present, so we... We went through the details of it and what that could mean uh, for the twins. I know that my twins are 17 years old, and um, every year I have to negotiate with the school. Whatever extracurricular activities there are, uh, you, you, your, your advocacy doesn't stop. I, I just I don't know when it stops. I know families of adult uh, ex micropremies that are still in the same boat um, uh, in some measure. It's a wonderful journey, uh, but it is definitely uncharted waters.
And because we are in uncharted waters, you have to be the best captain of your family. Um, and so that that would be my my main piece of advice. Um, you you are the one. You're the captain of your ship, and you know what the needs of your family of families are, or your kids are. Right. Um, there is no other expert out there, no matter what degree they have, don't know your child or your children better than you. You are really the liaison between these little kids, these graduate NICUs, and the world. So you are the liaison for them to make sense of everything, right? To connect them to the world um, in the best way possible to give them the best outcomes and the best quality of life. I love that advice because it doesn't matter what you're talking about in the NICU, after the NICU, in education, wherever, you are the person that is making the best decision for your children and your family. And nobody else is in your exact circumstance. And nobody else knows your children as well as you do. That That is, I, I know, as a physician, I know more about the medicine and the science, but I don't know your baby better than you do. That deserves a voice at the table. Um, and you are the only one who can make that decision. Again, it kind of goes back to why I, it's such a hard question when people ask me, well, if this was your baby, what would you do? Because, well, I know what I would do with my resources and my education and my family and my priorities. But I don't know what I would do with your education and your resources and your family and your values. And so that's why the parents have to be involved in the team. This You are the only... You are mm-hmm. the only person who can make that decision. And it's not even the grandparents, right? Like, yes, you can have family members that are giving you advice and giving you information and giving you perspective. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, it is not their choice how you choose to manage and do what you do with your family. And so you just take all mm-hmm. those little bits of information and little bits of advice that people give you, and then you kind of coalesce it all together and decide what direction you're going to move with your family. I don't know how many times I've asked for second opinions and third and fourth opinions. And then we would sit at the table uh, with my husband and make the best decision for our twins. Um, And, you know, I'm not saying by by any means that you should disregard the voice of the physicians and the providers, absolutely not. They are the experts in content. However, you need to take that content and tailor it to the needs of uh, your baby. And I think you mentioned something very important, um, and it is the family aspect. You mentioned grandparents and whatnot. And um, uh, it was my experience is just like every other micropremi family uh that says that there was a big disconnect uh, between their experience and how they related their experience to their families. It's very hard to convey um, what you're going through. You know, you hear things. I mean, everybody's well-intended, right? Everybody loves you um, and it's well-intended, but, you know, you hear things like, oh, you know, 
they just have to feed them more and they're going to grow and they're going to get out of the NICU. And I wish it was just a matter of feeding them. Um, you know, the, the, they can't grasp it just as you can't and you're immersed in it. So imagine being an outsider, um, not being able to, to see really what's, what's going on. So it's very hard. I know that a lot of families uh, speak about, um, you know, some strained relationships sometimes with um, grandparents or or relatives or friends or very good friends, close friends. So yeah, and that's that's one of the many dynamics of of the that that, that the NICU puts you in, right? Um, as as uh, as I mentioned, mother, uh, wife, citizen, sister, <laughs> um, you know, cousin. Um, so it's, it's definitely something to, to bear in mind. And I think that um, it is very, very, very important that we uh, bring the dads into the equation yeah. and into the conversation on how to tackle all these issues that go together in an unique experience. Because uh, in 13 years working with teams, um, I, I see that the dads get relegated uh, to uh, – to a secondary role, uh, we forget the dads. We forget to put them um, into the uh, care processes and dynamics, family dynamics inside the NICU. And it, you know, unfortunately, um, it graduates with the baby, and uh, and and after discharge, it still is the same. You know, the dads go back to work, and they are the providers. But uh, but we are talking about family center care so it's 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 not mother and baby center care it's it's families i think the same thing happens too for same-sex couples non-birthing parents two dad families yeah and mm-hmm. you know i think it's all made worse in the time of um this pandemic a lot COVID, of what you've just been sure. talking about just because now other family members can't visit. So your experience and their experience of the NICU are now even further apart because they're not allowed in the NICU. That's another podcast. <laughs> yes, for sure. That is another podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Your boys are now much older. Can we talk a little bit about long-term consequences that they've had? And if you're comfortable, what their what do they think about the fact that they were preemies? Do they have thoughts about that at all? We do have a number of um, gastrointestinal issues. Um, some are derived from the um, ostomy and reattachment uh, in one of the twins, and both have severe food allergies. Um, both have very special diets. Um, they have had everything, chronic constipation, malabsorption, uh, inflammation. Uh, they both have eosinophilic esophagitis, EOE. Um, they both walk with EpiPens everywhere. Um, and it's something that, oh, and they have chronic reflux. So it's something that is always um, with us. We live with it. Uh, so. We designed our lives um, around their issues, 
and uh, it's not for everybody. It is not for everybody. Um, it's taken us a long time to figure out what is the best, the optimal way to feed them and to help them grow and and all that. Um, so that's the number one issue that we have. But um, as all other micropremies, they've surprised us in a number of ways because they are such hardworking kids at everything they do. They do have a discipline for uh, improvement. Uh, it's in them. And so, uh, you know, in academics, they, they work very hard. They work very hard to be in school. They have had a couple of AP classes now in high school. Um, and, uh, and now they're great musicians. Uh, one plays the piano and the other one plays the bass. Um, and they love their bands. They are in a jazz band and they travel with their band. Um, so they are really good, gifted musicians and they enjoy doing that. And of course, we uh, look for ways uh, for them to expand their skills where it matters and what things that they can do. Um, are they aware of their prematurity? Absolutely. Uh, actually, they are currently... Uh, working with a very large uh, group here in South Florida uh, advocating for uh, micropremies and their families from the micropremie perspective, their youth ambassadors. And um, and they're working um, with other families and they're putting together, during this pandemic, they put together these care packages and they distribute it to other NICU families. So, yes, they are very much aware. And remember, um, we brought home a number of scars from the NICU, so you can't erase those scars. And I'm talking about the ones that are on the skin, not in our memories. But I think that overall, they are incredibly resilient kids. Um, they, they developed into these, um, you know, strong advocates for themselves, and, um, and now that they are older, um, I am transitioning into making them better advocates for themselves whenever they have interactions with providers, because they need to manage their own health. You've had quite a long time to reflect on your NICU journey. Um have your thoughts changed over the last 17 years? Or I guess a better question probably is how have your cha- your thoughts about your NICU experience changed over 17 years? Because I imagine that as your boys grow and some worries are put to ease and other worries come to fruition and you're navigating everything, um, that your thoughts have to change. So how, how has the last 17 years uh, given you time to reflect on that stay? Um, I would say that the, my first aha moment was realizing that we don't know a lot of things. That is very it's true. <laughs> yeah. We just don't. And, and, and I pluralize this when I say we and I mean care teams. And again, whenever I say we, I mean providers and families together. Absolutely. We just don't know. And so that uh, was key. 
uh, there was a, a before and after. I realized that we don't know a lot of things and, and, and that we are in uncharted waters here. And then working with NICU teams has given me a good appreciation on the uh, person side of providers. Um, I get it now. I get your burnout. Um, I get the difficult um, conversations with families. I get it. I get it better because I can see, I guess, I, I, I can have a more macro view um, of the story now instead of my micro view of my micro premise <laughs> you. Yeah. So that, that 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 has been huge for me. And I think that that's and this is what inspires me to to work doing what I do. Um because it's like, okay, so we are all in this together. We are all trying to figure it out. So let's do it. This podcast is from my mom, Dr. Anna Zimmerman. It is intended for your education. It is not individual medical advice. Join us next time. Thank you for listening. You keep saying it, Walt. No. Podcast.